I, I swore one day when I was a pastor, I would tell everybody at the end of worship, I shouldn't say this. I would say, instead of saying, please be seated, I would say, rest your rumps. So get that off the stream before Pastor Wayne sees it. Good morning, church. Welcome. Glad you're all here. That's how you break the ice. Welcome to everyone in the building, those of you who are joining us online, those of you who will be watching this in the future because it's saved forever. Hello. Um, my name is Pastor Dan. I'm the adult and student ministry pastor here at the church, still working on the adult part. Really good at the student ministry part. <sighs> so as I was getting ready to preach to you all today, something I consider um, very, very important, a huge responsibility to God and to his word and a true honor. Um, I went to Pastor Wayne and I asked for any sage advice that he could bestow on me before filling his shoes. And he said this to me, Dan, just make it great. Can you believe that guy? Right? So what was I to do? I'm a youth pastor after all. Today's message, the title is, A Great Message. You may have already seen that in your outline. So when Pastor Wayne gets back and he asks you all how I did, you can truthfully and honestly tell him, Pastor Dan gave a great message. Okay, here you go. Hold that aside. Sometimes, y'all, when we're part of something important, you learn that there's maybe one great piece of advice, one main thing that you need to know for example, I have multiple friends in various branches of the armed forces, including my older brother who served in the army. Thank you all who served our country. And they told me that as they went through their basic training or boot camp, the greatest piece of advice anyone ever gave them and the thing that they pass on to others is this. Don't draw attention to yourself, right? Just keep your head down. Do what you're supposed to do. It's like when you're a sound guy in the back. If everything goes perfect, nobody notices you. That's the goal, right? Other great pieces of advice I have heard over the years are this, right? For marriage, everybody that's married in the room, would you rather be right or happy? Yes. Or this one, this is biblical, don't go to bed angry. Do not let the sun set on your anger. How about this one? Listen more than you speak. You all get to do that right now because I get to speak. And... This one is a kid, children in the room, teenagers, don't eat yellow snow, right? Or this last one, thank you, Mr. Fred McFeely Rogers. Be kind always, right? Here's what I want you to do. Feel free to grab one of the church connection cards in front of you. I would love to see this this week. If you have a great piece of advice, will you write it on one of those connection cards and turn it into the connection kiosk or the offering box at the end of the service? I'm sure you guys all have some really great wisdom that this youth pastor can learn from. So I would love to see that this week. Just make it great, he said, right? <laughs> Zero pressure at all. Thanks, Pastor Wayne. Hope you're watching. You know who's pretty great? Jesus, right? And if Jesus was going to give us a piece or two of life advice, I wanted to know what he would say is the greatest. 
So my sermon study began, and to be honest, there is far too much to cover in my 35 minutes of allotted time. So I narrowed it down to 17 points for us this morning. Just playing. We are going to be covering two passages that I felt led to cover this morning. So here comes your two-point, two-message, two-passage sermon. This morning, we're going to be in the book of Matthew for the most majority of our time. We'll be starting in chapter 22, and then we'll be in chapter 28. We're going to hear from Jesus concerning what he considered to be the greatest. The two passages we'll look at this morning are well known to most Christians and probably familiar to most of us. These passages are widely known as the great commandment and the great commission. Yes. So turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 34. I'm going to be reading from the ESV today because it is my favorite word for word translation. I'm going to read and then we'll pray over God's word and then we're going to dig into it together. Is that okay? Too bad because I'm doing it anyway. Here we go. Matthew 22, verse 34 to 40 says this. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this morning and this opportunity to share your word. Jesus, as we come before you today as your people, we pray, Lord, that you open our hearts, that you give us humble listening ears to be able to understand, to experience your word in a new, fresh way. Lord, guide this time in conversation. Help it to glorify and honor you, Jesus. We love you so much. It's in your wonderful name we pray. Amen. A little background on today's text, right? Is that the Pharisees, you guys all know these guys? They're a religious group of Jews known to be adamant rule followers, And the Sadducees, who we'll talk about in just a minute, have come together and they've begun to ask questions of Jesus. And not the kind of questions that you come to somebody who you actually respect and you're like, man, I'm going to ask this guy lots of questions because I really want to learn from him. No, they were the kind of questions that say, who does this guy think he is? What is he doing here? Let's embarrass him in front of the crowd, right? And I... I like how, this is sort of how, you know, how a warrior may get into a courtroom and get a defendant or a a counsel or a witness up on the stand and he wants to discredit him in the eyes of the jury. So he starts asking leading or challenging questions to make him stumble or just make him seem just a little bit untrustworthy to put just a seed of doubt into the mind. And starting in verse 15, we see that they come at Jesus. First the Pharisees, then the Sadducees, then the Pharisees again, like waves crashing on a beach. And with our 2023 full perspective of the Bible, we can all see, right, that this is not really a good idea. Right? Can you imagine with me the Pharisees and the Sadducees all huddling up together? 
And they're like, okay, guys, I know we don't normally like each other. We don't normally work together. You guys, you're super legalistic. You follow all the rules. You tithe out of your spice jars. You're kind of weird. And we, we, we don't believe in the supernatural. We don't think God does miracles anymore. But something's got to be done about this dude. This Nazarite, right? Someone's got to put him in his place. Who has the best curveball? Who can step up to the plate? And starting in verse 15, we see them step up and they, they, they approach Jesus. And the Pharisees are like this. They're like, put me in, coach. I'm ready to go. Step aside, you sad guys. We'll handle this. And they begin to question Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar. Spoiler, but upon hearing Jesus' response, this is what it says in verse 22. They marveled and retreated. (laughs) They marveled at his answer, and they're like, whoa, we got to get away from this guy. Right? The Sadducees step up next to take the bat. They're asking Jesus about the one thing it always seems that the Sadducees ask about. And this is what happens, right? Because the main theological difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that the Sadducees did not believe that God still did miracles in their time. They had decided that there were no more miracles. There was no more supernatural going on, no resurrection, no healing, etc. So you may begin to see why I called them sad guys. That's how I learned the difference between them as a kid. The Pharisees are always saying, it's got to be fair, you see. And the Sadducees are sad because none of them are ever going to come back from the dead. So so the sad guys step up to the plate and disbelieving in the supernatural, they begin to ask Jesus about this crazy made-up story that could never happen. But here's how it goes. There's this husband, right, who dies and leaves his wife without an heir, meaning they did not have a male son to carry on the family. And yes, church, they had rules for that. And the rule was that the next brother in line would marry the dead brother's wife in order to give him an heir. And so they bring Jesus to this story where not once, not twice, not three, four, five, but this lady goes on to marry the other six brothers, all leaving her with no heir. And I have to just, you know, you can go on to read the response for yourself because the the Imperfect Family series ended last week, and I'm not going to touch that. But in verse 34, we see, once again, the Sadducees silenced by Jesus' answer. The Pharisees huddle up once again, right? And they pick, in verse 35, the best and brightest among them, a lawyer, stepping up to the plate. And in this context, lawyer meant scribe. And what is a scribe? A scribe was someone whose specialty was interpreting the law. And he steps up and asks Jesus this question. Which command in the law is the greatest? You see, rabbis at that time had determined that there were actually 613 commandments contained in the Pentateuch. That's our first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 613. Can you believe that? It gets worse, right? 613, according to the traditional record of the Ten Commandments laid out in Hebrew Scripture, was the number of letters actually in the Ten Commandments. Meaning, 
they went and found somehow one commandment for every letter in the Ten Commandments. And there's more, right? Of the 613, 248 of them are in the affirmative, meaning you shall blah, 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 blank, 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 blank. I shouldn't blah, blah God's word, sorry. And 365 of them were you shall not, meaning you shall not do this or that. 365. (laughs) Can you believe it? They found a no-no for every day of the year. And those laws were further subdivided into heavy and light, right? Big no-nos and little no-nos. And the scribes had yet to be able to decide the order of importance, of course, because there were 365 major and minor negative no-nos and another, (laughs) they had 613, they're trying to put in order. So our lawyer thought to himself that this might be the perfect opportunity, that maybe he could catch Jesus in an unorthodox moment that maybe he could discredit him by posing to him this question, which command in the law is the greatest? And church, that's a good question for us to wrestle with this morning. And this is how Jesus answers in verse 37. And he, that's Jesus, said to him, the scribe, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength, right? The strength part gets added. We'll talk about that in just a second. In Mark's account, chapter 12, verse 30, he adds Jesus saying the word strength. And the passage that Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five, part of the Shema, the Hebrew word from here, that morning prayer they would say every day, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That one adds heart soul, and strength. And the point is this, church, the terms heart, soul, mind, and strength are used to underscore the completeness of the kind of love that is called for. Brings us to our first point of the morning. I told you we'd get there eventually. The greatest law of God and the foundation of all Christian living, are you guys ready? Is this, to love God with everything in you. This is the same kind of commitment we expect from and hopefully give to those that we love, right? My wonderful wife, Liz, who's over helping make our children's ministry happen. She'll be watching this later. Hi, Liz. I love you. You're awesome. Right when she married me, she probably assumed, and rightfully so, that she would be getting from me, her husband, everything that she would be second to no earthly being and only number two behind God alone. And I, as her husband, have the same expectations from her as my wife. See, marriage, that covenant that we step into is symbolic of our relationship with Jesus. We are to love God with all of our being. Paul says it like this in Colossians 3, 1 to 3, if you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind 
on things that are above, not on things that are of this earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Right, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. Let's make this practical. Are you guys ready? This means that as Christians, right, we don't just get to love God when we're here at church. I don't get to just give Jesus my Sunday and then the other six days of the week are mine to do with however I want. No, it's all his time, 24-7, 365. This means that as Christians, we don't get to love and honor God with the first 10% of our finances, but then the rest is mine to do with how I want. No, the Bible says that it's all his When he leads me to be generous past what's required, I obey. It's like, I don't know, this would be a weird world, but if I took my paycheck and my wife took her paycheck and we kept them separate and we only, no, we become one flesh. It's all his. Can I get personal real quick? This means that I as a Christian, right, my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and I, Pastor Dan, need to continue to work on that, which I am. I'm feeling good, right? Need I go on, right? No. I like how Eugene Peterson puts it. He says this. So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it, right? Your old self is dead. Your new life, which is real life, even though invisible to spectators, is with Christ in God. He is your life. Like Peter says in Romans 6, we're dead to sin, but we're alive in Christ Jesus. As Christians, we are each called to love God with everything in you. Let's continue. Jesus goes on to say, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is a quotation from Leviticus 19.18. And contrary to some contemporary interpretations and worldly ideas, This is not a mandate for self-love. Does anybody know what self-love is? That's like saying, right, because God wants you to be happy, you should go ahead and buy yourself that new toy or that new phone or that new truck or get you some new bling because God loves you. Eh, No, right? Rather, this contains in different words the very same idea as the golden rule. Does everybody know the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You, right? And Jesus is not the first person recorded to ever use this command, right? For example, ancient Jewish rabbi Hillel said, what is hateful to yourself, do not to someone else. What is different between all the other teachings in the world and Jesus is that Jesus uses this in the positive, right? This meaning of hurting others. And Jesus instead is telling us to love our neighbors, rather than just not doing evil to them. You see the difference? Hinduism, Buddhism, yin-yang, Taoism, Taoism, everything, they all have this rule, but the idea is like cosmic karma. What you put out into the world is gonna come back to you, so you don't wanna do evil to people, so that evil won't come back. Jesus is saying the opposite. I want you to love people. I want you to do unto others what you want them to do unto you. This should prompt us as believers to measure our love for others by what we wish for positively for ourselves. 
It reminds me of a story my grandpa Conrad told me, or maybe my dad told me, so don't be offended if it was you, but I think it was grandpa Conrad. Y'all know my dad's in the room and he's a Southern Baptist pastor, so this is really hard, but it's okay. It reminds me of a story of one time, this, this hardware shop owner finds a magic genie lamp. Okay, this is a made up story, but, and he goes to rub the lamp and the genie pops out and he tells him this, you have one wish, but whatever you wish for, I will give double to your worst enemy. Now you see, the hardware shop owner's worst enemy was Billy Bob Joe. Why was it Billy Bob Joe? Billy Bob Joe opened up a hardware store on the other side of town on 2nd Street and stole almost all of his business. So he starts thinking to himself, self, this is really cool. I could wish for a million dollars. But then, then Billy Bob Joe, he'd get $2 million. And that just wouldn't do, right? And he continued to think on it and slept on it for a few days. And he thought to himself, well, I could ask the genie to half kill me, but, you know, being half dead doesn't seem like it's very enjoyable. But then one night it hit him. One night. It was the perfect plan. It was foolproof even. He, he went and got the genie lamp from the box where he had put it, and he pulled it out, and he summons the wish giver. And the genie says, have you decided what I should give you and double to your worst enemy? And he says this, yes. I would like you to destroy half of all my business. It's sad, but it's an often true commentary on the state of humanity's heart. But here's the reality. As Christians, we're called to love even our enemies. That's your next fill in the blank in case you missed it. As Christians, we're called to love even our enemies. And you may start asking me why. Church, if God so loved the world that he sent Jesus, that's why. If that's the God we serve, the God who loved the world enough to send his one and only son to die the death we deserved in order to show love to those who were currently his enemies, to show them unconditional love, then who am I as a recipient of that love to not pass it on. Think about it. Do I want people to be quick to forgive me and not hold a grudge? Yeah. Do I want people to think the best of my intentions even when my actions don't line up? Do I want people to accept me despite my, my undesirable attributes? Then I must do the same. I must love my neighbor as myself. We all look in the mirror and we see our good parts. Right, But then we look at everybody else and we see their bad parts. Jesus then finishes with a metaphorical knockout punch to this dude saying this, on these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. You catch it? To the guy who's known as a scholar and debater, the guy they pick to step up and ask Jesus the question, Jesus delivers on a silver platter the biggest, most beautiful slice of humble pie you've probably ever seen. Right? Jesus reduces all of humanity's moral duty to two things, love for God and love for one's neighbors. And he says it to this guy, everything you study, all of the Old Testament points to this. Don't you get it yet? And I sat there this week the last couple of weeks preparing this message. And I'm like, I know it. 
but does my heart get it yet? Am I living like this is true? And just in case you thought Jesus was having an off day and you're sitting here thinking this morning, man, Jesus, do I really have to? People are messy. Let me point you to some supporting scripture. Here we go. First Corinthians 13, 13, Paul says, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is, for Christians, love is the pinnacle of all. Or 1 John 4, 7 and 8, where John says, dear friends, do not let us love, let us, sorry, dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Pastor Dan, are you saying that if I don't love my neighbor, that I'm not a Christian? No, I'm not saying that. But John, John's saying that, right? John, the apostle who Jesus loved, right? John, the guy who wrote John and for second, third John in Revelation, Jesus' other, other cousin, right? John, the beloved one, says that the one that does not love doesn't know God. Or when Jesus says in John 15, 12, and 13, this is my command for you, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. How did Jesus portray love? He died. And not for those who were close to him and not just for the good and not for those who were kind to him. No, Romans 5, 8 says that he showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still his enemies, he laid down his life for us, So I would say Jesus even modeled for us, church, that we should be willing to die for our enemies because there's no greater love. Or one more, when Jesus says this in John 13, 35, by this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another, right? Love is the mark of Christ's likeness. And we could go on all day because this book is filled with support for these two supreme commands. To love God and love others. And church, I believe if we could just get this one right. If we could truly, completely, 100% love God with our all. If we could just give to him what he deserves. If we could if we would just obey out of love and desire to abide in relationship with him, we would experience the new and complete life to the full that he promises us in scripture. And that's why Jesus thinks that this passage is so great. And that love that's talked about here, which leads us, it's that love that leads us to our second passage. So just turn a little bit with me to the right, to Matthew chapter 28, Verse 16 to 20. I'll give you a second in case you got a Bible. It says this. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father 
and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We're going to take this one really fast. Just We're going to go verse by verse because we only got four. Verse 16, right? Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And there's a couple things I want to point out because the 11 disciples were there doesn't mean there weren't more. Verse 17, where it says some doubted strongly suggests that there were more than 11 present. It's most likely that Christ arranged for them to go to meet in Galilee because it's where most of his followers were and where a lot of his ministry happened. In fact, it seems like the most likely location that Paul's describing in 1 Corinthians fifteen six, where he writes this, that he, Jesus, appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters all at one time. But most of them are still alive and some of them have fallen asleep, meaning they passed away. And verse 17 goes on and he says this, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted, right? That one line, that simple phrase is one of the countless testimonies to the integrity of this Bible that you have to our scripture. Mark or Matthew very easily could have attempted to exclude or cover up that kind of fact that might lessen the perfection of what is such a glorious moment. And in verse 18, when Jesus comes to them and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is absolute sovereign authority. Lordship over all is handed to Christ. Where? In heaven and on earth. This moment alone is clear proof to us of his deity, right? At this moment in time, the time of his humiliation was over. And God had exalted him above all. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 puts it this way. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? And because of that, church, because of his love, because of his lordship, and for the glory that is due his name, verse 19 says this, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, right? On the basis of his authority, the disciples were being sent to make disciples everywhere. The sweeping scope of their commission was in line with the unlimited authority of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And their commission is our commission because of what it says in verse 20. Jesus said, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, this kind of evangelism doesn't just stop at the conversion of the unbeliever. It is reproductive and living like our church's mission statement here at First Baptist Church of Fair Oaks to make disciples who make disciples, right? Evangelism is difficult for many of us, right? Anybody else? Right? Constantly, when people are asked which of the list of biblical practices that Jesus gave us to do, right? Fellowship, discipleship, worship, ministry, and evangelism. Which one of those five is the most difficult? 
overwhelmingly, everybody says evangelism, right? There's a tension in our life, maybe a tension between fellowship and evangelism. We all want evangelism to happen. Every one of us in the room will say we want to see sinners saved. We want to see people become Christians. We want to see people step into relationship with the God of the universe that loves them. But that tension is a reality. And how we address it is just as important as how we do evangelism. And maybe it's just me, or is the idea of evangelism something that sometimes you're uncomfortable with, right? Some of us are really good at it. Monty, it's really good at it. My dad's really good at it. I'm not so good at it, right? For me, it always has to happen in relationship. And I'm gonna talk about that, right? When you gather as a group of Christians together in a church and you meet for weeks and for years and you create these strong bonds, fellowship becomes easy. It's easy to talk to someone you know who you're playing on the same playing field with, where you have shared beliefs and ideas But this idea of going out into the community and talking to someone and bringing them into your group and maybe messing up the whole social dynamic is hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for Christians. It's hard for many of us. Many Christians will tell you, right, I don't even know any non-Christians besides the guy at the grocery store and, right, the person who bags my groceries. And, you know, it's hard to have a meaningful conversation in that, like, 30 seconds that you're talking to the person or paying for gas, right? And while it's a bit of an exaggeration to say most Christians don't know any non-Christians, research has found that once a person becomes a Christian, his or her circle of non-Christian friends decreases dramatically. So how do we reach beyond our comfort zone? How do we open the doors to evangelism, right? You might be asking, Pastor Dan, how do we reach out to our non-Christian friends? Well, I'm glad you asked. I got two points for you. First one is this. Admit the tension between fellowship and evangelism in your life, right? Don't bury it under the rug. Talk about it. Discuss the implications and how they can be addressed. We're gonna talk about it in just a second. Number two is this. Define evangelism clearly. What is it? What isn't it? What do I, as one of your pastors, and what does God expect from you when it comes to evangelism? So let's define and set some clear expectations. It's important for us as a church to understand evangelism from a biblical perspective. First thing we need to do is we need to drop the often negative connotations that are associated with evangelism, right? We all know who those people are. We can picture the person standing on the street corner, yelling through the megaphone, Jesus is coming back tomorrow, you need, right? Or we all know the person who's pushy with their Christian beliefs and often will offend other people with their witness, Or we know the person that has that bumper sticker that says, turn or burn, sinner, you better get sanctified or you're gonna get chicken fried, right? We all, church, can I tell you something? I love you. Don't be those people, especially if you drive like someone that hasn't been redeemed. Don't put the fish on your car. You all know who you are. 
Instead, we need to understand how evangelism fits into God's overall plan. Evangelism, put simply, is sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who don't know him. Evangelism has eternal significance. It's the only one of those five biblical practices that I talked about that you can't do in heaven, right? If you're doing evangelism on the other side of life, you're in trouble because you're in the wrong spot, my friend. We have a problem. So let's do it on this side, right? Evangelism involves the privilege. It is a privilege of working with God and representing him to others. It's telling your story. In John 9, after Jesus heals the blind man, he simply tells his story. I was blind, but now I see. Church, here's what you have to do. Just tell your story. Just tell your story. Hi, my name's Dan, and I'm a sinner, right? I was born in a very young age. My parents moved often, but I always found them, right? All those things. It's not in my notes. I shouldn't have said it, right? Here's the reality. Evangelism is a duty that all Christians share. Once we shift our paradigm and we start to define evangelism as something that's relational, we begin to understand that our job is simply to share our story, not to convert people. That's God's job. We can then begin to move our focus away from the discomfort and towards obeying God, right? I want you to all think incrementally for a second, right? That just means take take baby steps. And I got three for you. First one is this, crawl, right? I don't want you to just go out there and figure out, crawl. Share your story, with other Christians, right? Maybe in your Bible study or in your small group, right? That should be a safe place where we encourage each other, correct? Second one's crawl. I mean, walk. Crawl, walk. Invite someone over for dinner and don't talk to them about Jesus. Just get to know them and build a relationship. And then run, right? Share your story with people you have built a relationship with. Relational evangelism allows us to just relax and be ourselves, to stop ignoring God's great commission, right? And start being part of it because evangelism is not a matter of giftedness. It is our legacy because those disciples obeyed Jesus and they told someone who told someone who told someone who told someone all the way down who told you about the good news of Jesus, The Great Commission was given to every follower of Jesus, not just to pastors or missionaries. This is your commission, as much as it's mine. And it's not optional. The words of Jesus are not the great suggestion, right? If you're part of God's family, his mission for you is mandatory. To ignore it would be disobedience. You are the only Christian that some people will ever know. And your mission is to share Jesus with them. And I believe today that we can conclude from these passages and from the rest of scripture that the entire law of God can be summed up in one word, love. Complete, sold out love for the Lord. 
Complete sold out love for the Lord and that love leads us to love what God loves. And that's people, even though they're messy. There is nothing that will inspire, inform, or enliven your own walk with the Lord than to experience Jesus working through you in the life of someone you love. It changes everything, right? And there's nothing more loving than being part of God's transforming work in someone's life. Not out of guilt or duty or compulsion, but because he first loved us and his love changes everything, right? Church, that's a great message. And that's the message we get to share. All right, let me pray. Stop it, I gotta pray. I went over, let me pray. I know I'm never supposed to go over as the guest speaker, but I did. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Jesus, we come before you humbled. Humbled that you choose to do ministry through us. Humbled that you choose to use us to bring people back into relationship with you, God. Holy Spirit, we pray that you just enliven our hearts to who you love that you awaken our desire to share your gospel, to share our story with those who need to hear about you. And if you're in the room today and you haven't heard about this gospel before and this is your first time, we'd love to talk to you about taking that next step of faith with Jesus. So I'll be back up after this song and we'll talk about that. But just, Lord, we come before you and we pray that you accept this moment. God, this offering of our praise, our hearts lifted to you, God, that this will be a sweet aroma to your ears. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for this time and this place in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.